0: Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Daniel Kahnema
1: and Dr. Jacinta Delhayes. Each episode will be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies.
0: Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make.
1: Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies.
0: Welcome to episode 46.
1: Hi, everyone. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Kendra Knowles, who is a research fellow at Rhodes University. And we will be talking about the Meerkat Galaxy Cluster Legacy Survey. But first, Daniel, how are you?
0: I'm well, thank you. Looking forward to a a break over Christmas. How are you?
1: I just called you Daniel. It felt really weird because I have never called you that before. I always call you Dan.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I always introduce myself as Daniel, but then kind of, I don't know, I leave it up to the person to decide whether they want to call me Dan or Daniel. You chose Dan
1: <laughs> I think I only call you Daniel when, when you're in trouble
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which is seldom, if ever <laughs> <laughs> Of course
1: Anyway, yes, good, I'm good, I'm good I'm, I'm here in Australia still And I apologise if in the background you can hear my dog snoring He has decided to be my office mate And he has fallen asleep on the job And he's <laughs> sitting down beside me snoring So <laughs> sorry if you can hear that
0: <laughs> That's a bit of charm
1: <laughs> yeah, so this week I've been attending the Surreyo Bursary Conference 2021. So that's the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory and it's a conference of all of the radio astronomy students and postdocs and young researchers in South Africa, and it's held every year. This is the 15th one, and it's a very exciting one, same as last year, well, similar to last year because there's a lot of results coming from the Meerkat Telescope, which is, of course, one of the world's best radio telescopes and is located in the Karoo in South Africa and is starting to produce a lot of amazing results, and we've been talking about a few of those on this podcast. So it's great to be able to hear a few more and get a few ideas of who else we might like to talk to on the podcast.
0: For today's episode, we're speaking to Kenda Knowles, as you mentioned. You spoke to Kenda. I actually know Kenda from from many years ago. She's also from Peter Maritzburg, where I grew up, and I was doing my MSc uh, while she was doing her undergrad, and I used to uh, tutor her or, I don't know, what do you call it when you, I don't know, you demonstrate the prac like so, the physics practicals. I used to be the the, oh, the tutor for her.
1: Okay, you were her lab demonstrator. Yes,
0: exactly.
1: Or her prac demonstrator. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, cool. Oh wow, I didn't realise that. <laughs> small world, small world.
0: And <laughs> Merredgebrook is a very small town.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I, I imagine so. Uh, yeah, no, I did. Talk, I talked to Kendra all about galaxy clusters and the great work that she and her team have been doing with the telescope. And I know, Dan, that you actually did your PhD on galaxy clusters, so you might cringe at a few of the questions I asked Kenda. I didn't know much about it, so (laughs) sorry about that. But yeah, I guess we can just maybe just briefly go through what, what galaxy clusters are and why they're important, but Kenda will tell us more about that. I thought we could start with discussing collective nouns, for things including galaxies (laughs) you don't look impressed but i'm going to plow ahead with this (laughs) okay so dan do you know do you know what a the collective noun for crows are what do you call a bunch of crows a murder a murder indeed very good here's a south african related one what do you call a a bunch of rhinos uh a clash a crash
0: Oh, it was close.
1: <laughs> very close, very close. I think that's brilliant. A crash of rhinos. Um, what about kangaroos? Mm,
0: no, I, I don't have that.
1: I wanted it to be something like a skip, but it's a mob. A mob of kangaroos.
0: A mob. Oh, well, that sounds about right. <laughs> All
1: right. What do you call, what's the collective noun for a bunch of galaxies? A bunch? No, a group a group of galaxies, so that's like if you've got a few galaxies bound by gravity, um, and what do you call, a, Yeah. uh what's the collective noun for a bunch of galaxy groups?
0: I know where you're going, you want me to say cluster, but if we're talking about gravitationally bound then correct. So what gravity gravitationally bound means is that when you have a galaxy, all of the stars within that galaxy are held together by gravity, so they all have their own gravity, they're pulling together. This dark matter, and the stars can't escape that galaxy. They're they're bound by gravity. A group of galaxies are, as you would imagine, a few to, to many galaxies, who are quite close together, and they also have gravity. They're attracting each other, and they're bound in a in a larger sense. So they they have space between them, but still they're pulling in on each other. So they, they can't escape that group. A cluster of galaxies. It's either, you know, a larger object or bound area of space where there's groups of galaxies within it. Many groups of, of galaxies. You know, potentially thousands of galaxies. The galaxies don't necessarily have to be in groups. And there obviously will be some groups and maybe some isolated galaxies within the cluster. But all of those galaxies are again gravitationally bound, sort of pulling towards each other in a cluster. So that's a cluster of galaxies. Whether that's the collective noun I think is a matter of of English more than physics because
1: Oh boo, play along, Dan. <laughs> it's a it's a group of groups. Okay, we'll go with it. It's a group of groups, so it's a collective noun. Okay, I'm that's my idea and I'm sticking to it.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Anyway, I think the listeners can get from this that, you know, clusters are a bunch of galaxies, a whole big bunch of galaxies, which may or may not be in groups. <laughs> you might have some galaxies that are in groups, you might have some that are not, but they're all bound gravitationally together into this big cluster. And you don't just have galaxies in groups, right? That In clusters. There's other stuff in clusters.
0: So in between galaxies, there's something called the intergalactic medium, which is very diffuse gas. I mean, we're talking very diffuse. A few atoms maybe per square meter or cubic meter and in a cluster or in a group of galaxies this intergalactic medium is obviously denser than in, in the void of space so there's a, an intergalactic medium in a group in between the galaxies and there's also something called the intracluster medium in a cluster where you know you have this this medium this diffuse gas which is pulling the the cluster kind of very hard to detect and really not not dense so we, we think of air as diffuse but air is incredibly dense gas we're talking sort of very few atoms
1: i mean clusters can collide with each other too can't they
0: yeah so in the the formation of of larger scale structures in the galaxy or in the universe there's there's sort of galaxies don't form in isolation as we've discussed, you know, they form in groups and clusters generally. And those clusters with their massive gravity wells keep pulling in other galaxies and, and other matter. And and when sort of two clusters eventually pull hard enough on each other or for long enough, those clusters can join and, and merge into a larger cluster. You know, that's how we go from groups to clusters. There's a sort of continual merging process.
1: And when these massive clusters collide, they can cause big shocks, heat up the gas and cause all of these crazy patterns that you can see with radio telescopes.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's what we'll be talking to, to Kenda about. She's an observational astronomer. So she's, she's working with Meerkat to detect these interactions between clusters of galaxies. But as you said, this intracluster medium, even though it's diffuse, the, the particles do interact. And often they're highly energetic. So they have a lot of energy and they're moving quite quickly. And when they interact, you can think of it as maybe as, as two waves crashing together and interact and well up and to, to make a sort of a larger wave or a, a bit of a, a splash, I guess.
1: I mean, crashing clusters. So what do you call, what's the collective noun for a whole bunch of clusters? Maybe it can be a crash of clusters. <laughs> Taking us back to the rhinos. <laughs> Can we please call this episode a crash of clusters?
0: Sure, you can. You can have it. Um, whether it takes off or not, we'll, we'll see.
1: All right. Anyway, I think we should uh, maybe hear from the expert now. So let's hear from Kenda. With us today, we have Dr. Kenda Knowles, who is a research associate at Rhodes University. Welcome, Kenda. Hi, Jacinta. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for being here. Kenda, can you quickly just tell our listeners who you are, where you're from, and how you got into astronomy? So yeah, as you've already introduced me, I'm Kenda Knowles. I have my PhD in
2: astronomy and cosmology. I'm from a, a city in South Africa called Pietermaritzburg. I grew up outside of a city with awesome night skies, but I only really got into astronomy my third year of of undergraduate when I found out about the South African SKA project. And it's been astronomy ever since. It's been great.
1: Excellent. So can you just tell our listeners briefly what is the SKA?
2: Um, So the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, this is a project to build the world's largest radio interferometer. So what that means is that it's a collection of radio telescopes or radio antennas that all get linked together to simulate one giant receiving area for radio waves. And it's aimed to be, um, or will be, the most powerful radio telescope that we've ever had.
1: And in the meantime, we have Meerkat, of course.
2: Yes, and Meerkat is wonderful. I love working with Meerkat data. I've been working with Meerkat data since about 2018 now. Gosh, it's been three years. (laughs) Um, And so Meerkat is the South African precursor to the SKA. So the SKA is being shared between South Africa and the African continent and Australia, Australasia, I suppose. And so each of those two countries basically built their own precursor instrument to test things like the engineering, but also to show that they can do the science and be able to host this massive project like the SKA. So Meerkat is South Africa's, it's 64 dishes in our Karoo desert, and it is extremely sensitive And has just been producing some wonderful science over the last couple of years.
1: Speaking of amazing science results, Kenda, I know that you have recently had a paper released using Meerkat data. And so you lead, I believe, the Meerkat Galaxy Cluster Legacy Survey. Is that correct?
2: Yes, it is. We shorten it to the MGCLS because we like our acronyms.
1: (laughs) We definitely like our acronyms in astronomy.
2: (laughs) So this is a, um, quite a large project. It's actually an observatory-led program. So they took the data and decided which targets to observe. But essentially what it's built up to is a collection of 115 targeted observations of galaxy clusters. And so each target was observed for quite a long time, so between six to eight hours. And what that means is you get really nice deep images of each of these patches of the sky.
1: Okay, and why were these patches of the sky chosen? What's in these patches? So
2: at the centre of each patch is a galaxy cluster, in case the listeners don't know what that is. So with the structure formation in the universe, you know, you start small with stars, stars form together or rather get bound together to create a galaxy. And then galaxies can also be bound together to create these very large structures that we call clusters very ingeniously, because it's a cluster of galaxies. And so these structures are very, very interesting, both for people who care about astrophysics, so plasma physics, you know, how do galaxies evolve, what's happening with magnetic fields in the region, cosmic ray electrons, protons, you know, particles traveling very, very close to the speed of light, uh, but it's also they're also very interesting for cosmology because um, when we look at how many of them there are, how they are distributed in the universe, they can tell us something about how our universe began and has evolved and maybe what might happen to it in the several millennia still to come. So they're very, very important objects to study for a very broad range of
1: sciences. So you mentioned that these galaxy clusters are huge. They're not just galaxies themselves they're clusters of galaxies they're groups of groups of galaxies so these must be really enormous how big are we talking here so when we're
2: working with them we talk about megaparsec scales just because they're so large but what it comes down to in light years is you know a couple of millions of light years from one end to the other if not more
1: and you mentioned that there's like in these clusters there's glowing plasma is that right and what is plasma
2: So yes, so galaxy clusters have the galaxies that we spoke about, but they also have large amounts of gas that are in between all the galaxies. And that's essentially what this plasma is. It's glowing, generally very hot gas uh, with, you know, magnetic fields also intertwining throughout everything. And you also then have dark matter that we can't see, but dark matter is actually what is making up most of the mass of these systems. Um, but of the things that we can see, it's the galaxies and this this hot gas.
1: All right. So we've got got magnetic fields, we've got plasma, we've got highly charged particles travelling really fast, we've got galaxies. So what does all of this look like? what What do you see when you look at your data that you've collected with Meerkat?
2: So with Meerkat, because it's just such a sensitive instrument and these particular observations were carried out for a long period of time, we see a lot of galaxies, many of which will be part of the cluster, but many of them will be between us and the cluster and also behind the cluster. So those show up as, you know, point sources in our image. They just look like nice little spheres. Some of them have very interesting structures. If they have jetted emission, which you see as sort of faint diffuse regions in the image, then in some of the clusters, we actually see the hot gas shining in the radio. So it's not in all the clusters, but in many of them we see the sort of very faint diffuse region where the cluster is, and sometimes there'll be large regions on the edges of the cluster as well.
1: Okay, so I'm looking at your press release now, which is gorgeous. It's got some images from your survey, and I'm looking at one that I think it's a cluster. So you can see lots of what you said with point sources, which just means like a dot of bright light. really doesn't look like anything, just actually a dot. And there's, I mean, there's hundreds of them, if not thousands. And then you've got some slightly bigger dots, which I'm thinking are bigger galaxies or more nearby galaxies. And then you've got this kind of glow in the background all over the place behind all of these point sources. Is this the glowing gas that you were talking about?
2: Yes. So in the one I think you're talking about in the center, there's this big sort of glow that's kind of looks like an ellipse. And then you on either edge of those, you've got like a big arc shape that's also glowing. So yes, the central bit is what we call a radio halo. And what we think this is from is when galaxy clusters bash into each other. So everything in the universe, we believe it builds up through merger activity. So small things merge into bigger things, etc. You also get these massive clusters merging together with other massive clusters. And when this happens, you get a lot of energy that gets deposited into the environment. And this can accelerate the... The particles in this gas, so electrons, protons, and they can accelerate them to speeds um, quite close to the speed of light. And when you also have magnetic fields, which we mentioned earlier, when you have those two things together, you get what we call synchrotron radiation. And in order for this diffuse glow to cover the scales that we see, so that central glow is, again, probably about a million light years across, in order for the electrons to keep Emitting and to keep at the speeds that they need to be, there has to be this um, extra energy that keeps on being deposited. And we think that that comes from the merger.
1: Okay, so listeners can't see this image and it's really hard to describe it, but we're going to put it on the website. So do check it out. It's a stunning image. It can be quite confusing at first if you don't know what you're looking at. So, what you're saying, Kendra, I think, is that everything can collide in the universe. And so, even groups of groups of galaxies, so galaxy clusters of, I don't know, how many how many galaxies can be in a cluster of thousands? Yes, definitely. So big clusters of thousands of galaxies, those two can collide with one another. And all of the gas that's between all of the galaxies kind of collides together as well and glows. Is that what this kind of fuzzy, faint, glowing part of the image is?
2: Yes. Well, that's what we think. There's lots of different theories about how it might come about. But The one that seems to be most successful at the moment, at least for the the diffuse glow in the center, the one that looks like a blob, (laughs) is that, yes, when you get these massive galaxy clusters merging together, all this energy gets deposited and you get a lot of turbulence happening because obviously it's a very dynamic environment. There's lots happening, lots of moving parts, and so there's a lot of turbulent energy in this gas from both clusters And it's that turbulent energy that's driving the particles in the gas to these relativistic speeds, so near the speed of light. And they need to be that fast in order to create the radio emission.
1: So you said that this diffuse... Diffuse means kind of like a fuzzy cloud-looking thing. This is called a radio halo. What do we learn by studying the radio halo in a galaxy cluster?
2: So we can learn several things. One of the key points is about the magnetic fields within the cluster. So magnetic fields are things, they're everywhere, we think they're everywhere, but surprisingly we don't know very much about them. And so studying these, these radio sources, as you say, diffuse blobs, I call them diffuse blobs a lot, because they're intimately linked with the presence of magnetic fields, how bright they are in the radio depends on how strong the magnetic field is. So if we can observe them, the first thing we know is that magnetic fields are there, The second thing that we can find out is how strong is the magnetic field. And if we start looking at these in different types of clusters, so ones that are very young, ones that are a bit older, massive ones, less massive ones, we can then start to see if there's a difference in the magnetic field in these different types of clusters, and that can try to help us understand how magnetic fields in the universe evolve.
1: So if it's glowing more, it tells you that the magnetic field in the cluster is larger, right? Yeah, is stronger. Is stronger. Okay, so people will know what magnets are. We have magnets on our fridge and these are gigantic magnetic fields on the scales of not just galaxies but on the scales of clusters of galaxies. So there's this huge cosmic magnetism. I'm scared of magnetism on this scale because I don't understand it and it's really complicated. It's really hard to work with. So where is this magnetic field coming from and what does it mean?
2: So these are some of the questions that we want to figure out. So there's various theories about where cosmic magnetism comes from. So I don't work with that at a huge level in my day-to-day, but the, the main ones is that magnetic fields could be what we call primordial. So they existed right at the beginning, you know, at the start of time, and then they grow in strength as the universe ages, there's also um, theories that magnetic field growth or how they get stronger could be related to more dynamical activity rather than just a, a general aging process. But that's one of the things that we really, we really don't know and we need more observations in order to be able to, to answer these types of questions.
1: So this is actually the mystery and and why you're doing this sort of, part of why you're doing this sort of work is to figure out where these magnetic fields came from. Yes, that's definitely one of the questions that we'd like to answer. Amazing. And huh, when I say I'm scared of magnetic fields, I'm not scared as in they're not going to hurt us. <laughs> you know, these galaxy, these cluster sized magnetic fields, they're not going to hurt us. I'm scared of it because it makes me nervous because we always have to um, consider magnetic fields in our research. And it's just so hard that it always scares me away. But now I've heard, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that you can study these magnetic fields through the polarisation of the light that you're looking at. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's the other thing that we can do. So not just on how bright the emission is, but we can actually study the alignment of the magnetic field, how it's aligned you know, with respect to the observer, so that's us, and also what we would call the fractional polarisation. So that is how strongly polarised is it? Is it maybe a few percent? Is it many percent? Is it not polarised at all? And looking at that can also help us understand more of the the structure of the magnetic field rather than just its strength.
1: What does it actually mean for light to be polarised? Does, does this have something to do with, like, polarised sunglasses, for example? So, yes. I mean, it's quite a complicated concept, but to try and keep it
2: simple, light arrives at a particular angle. So the wave is travelling at a particular speed, but it's also got a particular angle compared to the observer. And when you so polarise glasses, for example, they will cut out waves hitting the glasses at a certain angle and let in others. And if you twist those glasses, you tend to see that it then shuts out different light. So polarisation of any light, so radio is still light, it's just at the very low energies. And so it's a similar concept of when you observe polarisation – in the images that you make, um, you can observe an angle. You can also observe a amount of polarisation, and that's related to the direction that the wave is travelling when it arrives at us.
1: Great. Thanks for that, Kendra. I know it's a difficult concept to try and get across, but I think that was a great explanation. So we've talked about the what the galaxy clusters are. We've talked about the radio halo and how that's teaching us about the magnetic fields. Um, and now I wanted to ask you about these weird brightly glowing giant arcs that are in the picture. So these are kind of like these huge curved stripes of bright light through your images around the outside of the cluster. What are they?
2: So these are what we call radio relics. So it's a similar type of emission. It's still very fast electrons um, traveling in a magnetic field over very, very large distances. But these have a slightly different formation mechanism compared to the, the halo that we talked about before. So these relics as you've you've said you know they're on the outer edges of where the cluster is and they have these nice arc-shaped form. These are related to shock activity in the cluster. So again related to the merger. So if you think you have two massive things bashing into each other, you're going to have shock waves traveling through the gas, traveling through the plasma. So these shock waves are compressing the gas. And they'll also be compressing the magnetic fields. And so, when you have massive shocks, you sometimes get these radio relic structures, which are related to these shocks driving that energy that we said we needed the electrons to be very, very fast, and there has to be some energy to drive that. So, we believe for these relics that that energy comes from the shock activity, which is why you see them generally to be quite nicely aligned with the edges of the cluster where you would see the shocks in, for example, X-ray observations of the gas.
1: Wonderful. So huge shocks of these collisions. What can we learn from these radio relics? So from the, the radio relics, they can tell us something about the shock
2: itself. So how strong was the shock? And if we know that, we can sometimes work backwards to try simulate the actual merger itself. So was it just one thing bashing into another thing? Were there many smaller components all coming in together from different directions? Again, it can tell us something about the magnetic field. So we talked about polarization. Relics tend to show polarization, unlike the halos. And this is um, because the magnetic field is getting compressed and it gets very nicely aligned at the edge of this arc shaped structure. Um, And when you have a nice aligned magnetic field, you tend to see polarization. Whereas in the halo, because it's such a turbulent environment and things are happening in all sorts of different directions, well, there definitely are magnetic fields, but you tend not to pick up polarization because there's no nice alignment of the magnetic field because everything's getting messed up during the turbulence. So with relics, we tend to see very nice structured polarization, which tell us that there's a very nice structured magnetic field. And again, from that, we can tell things about the strength of the magnetic field, the structure of the magnetic field. You'll see in the the image the very bright one at the bottom left of the image. If you look closely, there's actually filaments that you can see. It's not just one fat stripe. There's filaments of radio emission that you can see, and those filaments will be tracing magnetic field filaments as well. So that relates back to the structure of magnetic fields and how they get distributed throughout this cluster environment.
1: So, Kenda, this is amazing. It's it's just such a treasure trove of information that you've got here. Like, what does it feel like when you look at these images? Sometimes I just stare at them because I find them very pretty
2: yeah. and very beautiful. Yeah. Um, but I think it's also a an immense sense of achievement, not just for myself, but this was a massive team effort. So I might be the first name on the paper, but it took a lot of different people to make sure that this project got published. So that goes all the way from Soreo taking the data, deciding what things to look at, to the people who were heavily involved with taking the data and making it into these beautiful images that we see. And then once we have the images, then comes all the exciting science stuff of analyzing them and, and figuring out what we can do. And the thing I think that I, I like most about these data sets is that it's not just one science goal. So in the paper that we published, we sort of gave highlights of several different types of science that you can do with these images. So we've talked a lot about this diffuse stuff, and that is my main interest, this diffuse emission in clusters. But you can also look at all those, those points of bright light that you source, all those galaxies, and use them to study things like star formation in the cluster. So in the ones where there's this you know massive merger activity and all this energy, does that impact all the star forming in the actual galaxies themselves we can look at some of the the galaxies that we see with these beautiful large structures to them so they have their own jets their own filaments and we've been seeing structures that we've never seen before so they're not just pretty they're also really really interesting for our science and they've both helped us answer questions that have existed for a while but the very exciting bit is that they're just creating more questions as well. And I think that's what I love most about these data sets.
1: That is a very exciting thing that your data is introducing new questions. I mean, that's really what science is all about. Going and looking at something and finding something that you didn't even know was there. The unknown unknowns is so exciting. So what is it about... Meerkat that makes this data set so amazing? I mean, you mentioned that you're finding things that you had never seen before. And when I asked you about Meerkat, you smiled so enormously. And and most people smile, they give this huge smile whenever we talk about Meerkat, and I certainly do. Yeah, what is it about Meerkat that's special that lets you do this sort of work?
2: So with Meerkat, there's there's two things that really come together to make it a really powerful instrument for these types of, of studies. And the first one is the design of the array so where did they put the antennas when they they put them on the ground so there are some arrays out there like the vla where the antennas can move meerkat is fixed so they they put the the cement in and then that's where your antenna is for the rest of its life and they were very very careful when they designed the array so that they grouped a lot of them together so what we call the core there's about a one kilometer diameter core of antennas which is roughly i think about 60 percent Of the antennas are in this core, so they're very tightly packed. And what this means is that you get very, very good sensitivity to large, faint stuff on the sky. So when we're talking about all these diffuse structures, the halos, the relics, that's exactly what they are. They're they're patches of very large scale, but very faint emission. And so Meerkat is immediately very sensitive to that in a single observation. But they didn't just worry about the core because... If you're sensitive to large-scale stuff, that's great. But as we see in these images, this, the sky is made up of a lot of small things. And if you can only see things on the large scale, so if you think about smoothing something out or blending things together, you're going to miss a lot of that fine detail information which you need. And so Meerkat, the in terms of where the antennas are, there's also and um, the rest, the other 40% or so of the antennas are more spread out. And so you get these long separations. And what that means is that you get sensitivity to small things on the sky. So basically the array layout gives you the simultaneous sensitivity to big and small things to be able to probe a whole bunch of different scales in one single observation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the engineering was fantastic and they just built it incredibly well and it's an incredibly sensitive instrument. So in terms of the receivers the antenna gains and, and all the you know the, the technical engineering side of things meerkat was designed to have certain specifications the astronomers said to do our science we need to have an instrument that is this sensitive and then the engineers came along and basically doubled the sensitivity so they made meerkat twice as sensitive as anyone was expecting um, which is great because it means you don't have to look at something for as long to get a sensitive image. So let's say you wanted to gauge a certain sensitivity and you said, I need 10 hours with the telescope to do this. Um, With the the way the engineers built it, you can get that same sensitivity in maybe six or seven hours, which means we can pack in more science. So it's those two things that just make me, such a phenomenal instrument, particularly in the South, where there isn't really a lot in the radio other than South Africa and Australia now there's obviously been a lot of development driven by the Square Kilometre Array. And so that's opening up the the southern sky to us that we've never been able to see at these depths or with these sensitivities.
1: Absolutely. Are you um, looking forward to the SKA?
2: I am. I'm also a bit intimidated by the SKA in terms of how much data we're going to be getting and also how sensitive they're going to be. I mean, we see these new images from Meerkat and and ASCAP as well from Australia and, you know, we're already starting to see things that we weren't expecting to see. And so that's opening up the new questions. When the SKA comes along, so there we're talking about, you know, not 64 dishes, but thousands of dishes and over much larger, you know, separations. So we're going to be really be able to get down to the very, very fine detail. It's a bit mind boggling to me about what we're going to be seeing. So from the science side, it's incredibly exciting. From the technical side, incredibly daunting. Because with all that amazing power comes a lot of
1: responsibility, responsibility
2: to get the data to do something. <laughs> yes. So um, there's a lot of very smart people already working on and trying to prepare ourselves for the SKA because the amount of data we're going to get through, we need to find ways to, to handle it in order to get this amazing science out that we're so excited to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what's next for you, Kenda? Now that you've got this paper out, you've published the data, I I assume this is public and anyone can play with the data. What do you want to do next? So many things. <laughs> so yes, this
2: data is definitely public. You know, there's we have a website for it, and you can access all the data through there directly, or just follow the links in the paper, because the main goal of this legacy survey is is exactly that. It's supposed to be legacy data that will be available to the entire global community to do whatever science they want to do with. So from my side, there's still projects using this data that we've got ongoing. As I said in the paper, we. We sort of showed highlights of things. So we've got some projects already underway about just going into a slightly deeper level, and there's some some students that we're we're getting in for you know their masters and PhD projects and whatnot. I also have other MeerKat data, um, which is also on clusters, but the difference is that these are short observations rather than these very long ones. And so I have all that data that I'm I'm busy working with and uh, working with people both in South Africa and overseas on just trying to get as much out of of Meerkat as possible before it gets uh, sort of amalgamated into the square kilometre array.
1: Oh, wow. So no lack of things to do. Definitely not. With Meerkat, there never is a lack. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kenda. Before you go, do you have any final messages for listeners? I would just say that, you know,
2: I don't know who the listeners are in terms of their, you know, amateur astronomers or just idle listeners, but keeping your mind open to the universe and what's out there and trying to understand, even in a tiny way, everything that's going on, I think is is a great thing to keep um, our minds and our imaginations active. So thank you for listening to these
1: types of podcasts. Absolutely. Thanks, Kenda. And if listeners want to find you online, on social media, are you there? I'm on Twitter,
2: so I don't use it very much. I use it for rugby mostly. But they can find me on Twitter at kilokilok 9 Otherwise, there are the Rhodes pages. There's a page there, and I think my email address is on there as well.
1: All right, and we'll link to all of those on the website. Thank you once again, Kenda, for joining us. This has been uh, fantastic. Cool. Thanks very much for having me. This has been fun. When I was saying I was uh, scared of magnetic fields, what I actually meant was intimidated. I'm intimidated by the study of magnetic fields. It's very difficult.
0: Yes, it is very difficult. I think the physics of magnetic fields is very difficult, it's not something we understand on a sort of theoretical level, what magnetic fields are and how they work, in terms of the fields themselves, we can model that, we can understand it. I think that the, the difficulty comes in these environments that we're looking at in astronomy. right? So. We're looking at intergalactic mediums or, you know, in galaxies or in clusters, intracluster media, and we don't know what effect the magnetic fields have on those interactions. So, you know, we understand how magnetic fields work, but we don't understand how they work in these very extreme environments.
1: And I feel like I didn't quite do justice to the explanation of polarisation do you have a do you have do you have a a better explanation for us, Dan?
0: It's funny. I feel like that too. Um. Hey. <laughs> no. Uh, no, I mean, I think uh, you know polarization. Um, it, I think you explained it fairly well. I mean, with polarized lenses and and your glasses. I think that the way I picture it, you kind of have to have a picture in your mind of how these things work. When you think of light, we can think of the light as a photon or a particle but it has a wave nature it has a wave function and the light is sort of oscillating in a sort of sinusoidal wave and some of those those photons are moving up and down some of them are moving left and right and every other angle in between so you know if you think of a, a the face of a clock all of those possible angles are coming towards us and if you have sunglasses like you mentioned it will cut out all of the angles except for one so you'll just get the up and down wave coming through uh, and that's what a polarized lens does it takes away all the glare and all, all these other elements of light and when you're looking at polarized light in from a radio galaxy you can detect that you know the light will be polarized in one way more than another and we have to understand why that happened and generally why that happened is because there's a magnetic field and a magnetic field basically turns those angles or or, you know eliminates some of the angles so that the the light has a preferential kind of up and down or or left and right based on the gas it's come from or the gas it's traveled through how was that
1: yes that that was a great explanation thanks dan
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) i hope so Yeah, so, I mean, it was fascinating to hear Kenda talking about the observational astronomy that's that's happening now with Meerkat being such a sensitive uh, instrument. You know, we can delve deeper. I can dust off my PhD, but, you know, when I was doing my PhD, like, the Meerkat didn't exist, and, you know, I was doing the theoretical aspect, and we need observations to to try and compare our our theory to and try and understand how these shocks are forming and, and what they really look like. You know, having more and more data means that we can improve and refine our theories. And, you know, it's just really exciting to hear these progress going on.
1: Yeah. And I love the concept of a legacy survey. So that means that it's meant to be this data set, which is so good and contains so much stuff that it's like a treasure trove that people will be able to dig into for many, many years to come and find more and more stuff. So, yeah, I think that over the years, this this data set is going to produce a whole bunch of research a whole bunch of papers and looking forward to seeing the results from those
0: okay so um just to to note we're almost in december i think it's when this comes out we'll be well into december and we will be taking a little bit of a break uh, both jacinta and i over the festive season and we will be back in january with more
1: Yes, indeed. And while we're away, we hope that JWST will successfully launch as we discussed that all in episode 35. We were mentioning how the launch date was December 18th, but since then it has been pushed to December 22nd. And by the time you're reading this, who knows when the launch date will be, but hopefully it's in it sneaks in in 2021 and we really hope it's a successful launch. So hopefully by our next episode, we can bring you the updates um, with how that's going.
0: Yes, I wanted to wish all our listeners a very happy and joyful JWST launch.
1: (laughs) Yes, indeed. And I will wish our listeners a very happy and a very safe and healthy holiday season. And we will see you back here in uh, 2022.
0: Thanks as always for listening. And we hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Cosmic Savannah.
1: You can visit our website, thecosmicsavanna.com where we'll have the transcript, links, pictures, and other stuff related to today's
0: episode. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A. NNAH.
1: Special thanks today to Dr. Kendon Knowles for speaking with us.
0: Thanks to our social media manager Sue Marie Hatting and our audio editor Jacob Farn.
1: Also to Mark Olnutt for Music Production, Michal Werchek for photography, Carl Jones for astrophotography, and Susie Karas for graphic design.
0: We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation, the South African Astronomical Observatory, and the University of Cape Town Astronomy Department.
1: You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts, and we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review us or recommend us to a friend
0: and we'll speak to you next time on the cosmic savannah
1: i mean i do have to be honest i missed most of it because the zoom chat froze but i trust that it was a great explanation brilliant i mean it was excellent i promise (laughs) well i look forward to hearing back this episode and (laughs) uh, indulging in the explanation (laughs) carl jones for astrophotography and susie karas for graphic design tonka stop it
0: tonka
1: He's digging up the carpet. <laughs> hey, hang on, sorry. My dog What is
0: this? What is his, his name? His name
1: is Tonka, like Tonka truck. We didn't name him, he's a rescue.